From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I can't complain. How are you doing today, Michael? I am doing very well, thank you. Is there frost on your pumpkin yet? Um, There just quite isn't yet, so um, (laughs) I... I like to procrastinate whenever it comes to that. Oh. <laughs> yep, yep. It's it's definitely feeling like fall up here, yeah. but uh, we, yeah, we still have a ways to go. Yeah. Well, you know, we have Florida, so that. Well, <laughs> that's true. I, I'm at a bit of a higher elevation than you. Just a little you know, bit on, on the opposite side of the country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I believe we are actually under the sea level, so. There's that. Oh, I didn't know that. I, oh, that's interesting. I don't think that's actually true. I, I think we're oh. <laughs> like right on or five feet above. But well, I, I know if, if you dig like three inches down, you hit the water table. <laughs> yeah, it's we're we're really close to it. Needless to say, but <clears throat> hey, it's it's the sunshine state. It's paradise, right? Yeah, I, that's what they say. Except in July, I'd rather have fall. It's just me. <laughs> I know. Uh, fall and spring are my favorite times of year. Although fall, we have a lot of trees where we live, oak trees and liquid ambers mm-hmm. and yellow pistache, and they like to shed their leaves. Gorgeous colors. Oh, and white birch. Gorgeous colors. But um, we we are up to our knees in leaves in our gardens. Oh, I- so we take care of them. Yeah, I, I understand that. So now being a homeowner for the first time, I didn't didn't realize how terrible it was having to clean leaves out of gutters and just everywhere. So yeah, and it's not and, even and fall for us yet. No, no, and and what you'll learn is you'll you'll clean them out, and then the next day they're full. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> so I'm dealing with it. It's it's crazy, but but that but I love the change of seasons. Yeah, we didn't get that in San Francisco. It was just you, you knew what the season was by how thick the fog was. Yeah. No, I, I miss the seasons <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, well, you know, Craig, a lot of people talk about their bucket list of experiences they'd like to have or places they'd like to see before they, you know, kick the proverbial bucket. Um, do you have a bucket list? What What's in yours? Uh, it's it's kind of constantly changes based on just what i think is actual actually possible to ever get to so uh you know right now the the only places i've really seen are most of the east coast some of the west coast some states in between in terms of the united states canada mexico all the cruises we've been on alaska hawaii uh, central europe so like right now on my bucket list of course is, is like going to england wales ireland 
crossing over to get to Paris to see Disneyland Paris, uh, then going all the way over and uh, going to Tokyo and not only seeing Tokyo, but also Disneyland there and just uh, so much more. I don't, I, and I, I think those are the ones that I know I'm going to have a chance to visit. So I, I try to, I try to not come up with a bucket list that's, that's too big that I'll be disappointed one day for not hitting everything. Mm-hmm. But what, what about you, Michael? Where are yours? Gosh, uh, you know, I, I drop things in, pull things out as it goes on. But yeah, I have a lot of places I would like to see. Some in the United States. Like, you know, I've never been to Yellowstone. And uh, so I want to do that. I've never been to Mount Rushmore. Although I think once you get there and see it, I'm not too sure what you do after but that. Those are two of mine in terms of the yeah. United States. That and the Grand Canyon. Still haven't mm-hmm. been there. I've been to the Grand Canyon when we had our first, uh, you know, we had our first Give Kids the World, you know, Western. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah, in about Arizona. That. Yeah. that was great. Grand, Grand Canyon is magnificent. There is absolutely no photo that can do it justice. Yeah. It's, well. you think, you know, it's big. You have no idea. Hmm. And, and, and then the colors and the beauty and, and the silence. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. Just amazing. But and then and yeah and a lot of the places you talked about I, I want to do a transatlantic voyage sometime mm. and and I I also want to go to England before Carol got sick we were actually planned to do the ABD uh, Nights and Lights trip yeah and and then we had to postpone that for a while and so we hoped to, to do that again and because uh, you know my family's from from England so I, yeah. I, I want to go back there and see folks and see you know see see some of the things that you know I've I um I've read about and seen photos of and uh, and definitely Disneyland Paris so on my bucket list is to see every Disney park around the world I have been to Tokyo Disneyland and Disney Sea but I'd love to go back and I would and if all goes as planned I'm going on the Diz, uh, you know, ABD trip to yes. China in a year from now. Yes. So that's exciting. And uh, so yeah, I'd love to go to the Holy Land, you know, things like that. So, yeah. you know, I'd love to go to Rome. And and then there's uh, odd things I want to do. I'd love to go on an African photo safari and all that, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Because, I, you know, Animal Kingdom is my favorite park. So... I'd love to to go to Africa, uh, but uh, and one place that I really want to go to that's on my bucket list we're going to talk about tonight, and I really want to go to Marceline, Missouri. Me and, too. And well, you know, I think we both have to go there, and we have to do a very special episode of Connecting with Walt. <laughs> I'd be okay with that. There. So, <laughs> uh, but and so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We are going to talk about Marceline, Missouri, you know, where Walt's dreams began. And, you know, Walter Elias Disney was born in Chicago, Illinois, on December 5th, 1901, as Disney fans know, in a house on 1249 Trip Avenue that had been designed by his mother, Flora, and constructed by his father, Elias. Now, Elias worked as a carpenter at the time, but he had no business sense. Um, Due to some bad investments, uh, Elias had not been able to build up any savings and was in debt. 
And as Chicago grew, crime also grew. And Elias decided he didn't want to raise his family in Chicago, where his older sons might fall under the influence of gangs. Um, So Elias decided he'd move his family to Marceline, Missouri. It's about 90 miles or so northeast of Kansas City, uh, where his brother Robert already owns some land. So on March 5th, 1906, Elias purchased a 45-acre farm with an orchard and lots of grazing space for cattle. Now, Marceline was a train stop on the new Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. It's also a song. Um, The railroad had determined that for the comfort of passengers and to keep their equipment maintained, and remember, this was steam locomotives, so they had to put water Mm -hmm. in those locomotives fairly regularly. They needed a train stop every 100 miles or so. So the town of Marceline existed because it was within that 100-mile distance of Kansas City. And it was named after the daughter of the first local railroad superintendent. Now, when the Disney family arrived in April of 1906, Marceline was 20 years old, with a population of 5,000. The town's people were hardworking, and the largest employers were the nearby coal mine and the oil and natural gas fields. Most people lived on farms growing fruit, vegetables, wheat, and barley, and raising beef and pork for the big city markets. Now, Walt had no memories of his early years in Chicago, but he remembered everything about Marceline, and that is where our story really begins. Now, Elias and his two older sons, Herbert and Raymond, stayed behind in Chicago for a time to tie up loose ends and to pack up and ship the family furniture and belongings. Now, Flora and Walt Roy and Ruth took the train to Marceline, and they were met at the station by one of their new neighbors, Mr. Kaufman, who took them to their new home. Elias had purchased a 25-year-old farmhouse on County Pike Road that had been built by a Civil War veteran, William Crane, who had recently passed away. The house was a very simple and humble white two-story square box, about 26 feet wide on each side. A porch was on the south side of the house. There were four rooms on the first floor of roughly the same size, a front parlor, back parlor, kitchen, and dining room. On the second floor were three bedrooms. To the west, there was a smokehouse and a detached summer kitchen for use in the summer so the cooking wouldn't heat up the house. There was an outhouse and a huge red barn, which was one of Walt's favorite places on the farm. It was filled with farm animals, hay bales, and lots of hiding places. This barn held so many happy places for Walt that 30 years later he built a copy of it for his backyard railroad, the Carrollwood Pacific. Is it actually an exact copy of it? I think it's a bit smaller. Okay. But otherwise, it's an exact copy. That's cool. That's very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little more about the barn on the farm in a bit. Now, Walt quickly fell in love with the farm. And for Walt, the magic of his life was about to begin. Shortly after their arrival in Marceline, Flora took Walt to Murray's department store on Kansas Street and purchased Walt his first pair of overalls. Walt was now a country boy. 
Flora and the children camped out on the floor of the farmhouse until their furniture arrived. Walt and his brothers and sisters loved hearing the hooting of the owls and howls of the coyote, sounds they never heard when they were city children. So when Elias, Herbert, and Raymond finally arrived, the first floor back parlor became Herbert and Raymond's bedroom. Upstairs, one bedroom went to Elias and Flora, one to Ruth, and one to Roy and Walt. Now, farm work at the turn of the 20th century was hard manual labor. There was little mechanical farm machinery. A farm's energy source was human and animal muscle. Many weeks would have to be spent behind a mule and plow to prepare the fields for planting uh, the crops of corn, sorghum, wheat, and barley. All the farm animals, the plow horses, cows, pigs, and chickens, had to be fed and watered, and their stalls had to be mucked. As Elias and the older boys toiled in the fields, Flora spent her days cooking, cleaning, laundering, and sewing. Flora also had a little side business. She would purchase cream from McAllister's Creamery and churned butter that was of such high quality that she sold it in local stores. Elias declared the butter could not be wasted at home. In a rare act of defiance, Flora buttered her home-baked bread and passed it butter-side down to her children. However, five-year-old Walt was too young to help with the hard chores of the farm. His main task was to keep an eye on his younger sister Ruth. He and Ruth also had the responsibility for taking the draft animals to the pond to cool off after working in the hot sun all day. Otherwise, Walt's days were pretty much carefree. He had the farm and its animals to play with. The nearby woods provided Walt with the perfect place for imaginative adventures. At the nearby Yellow Creek, Walt would go fishing, wading, and swimming. A coal mine about half a mile to the east had a huge slag pile that became Walt's personal mountain. Rush Johnson, a Marceline resident, has claimed that 50 years later, Walt told him during a visit to Marceline, the slag pile was his inspiration for Disneyland's Matterhorn bobsled attraction. Which is sort of interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Seems a little tall tale-ish to me on that one but who knows yeah i don't know i don't know i mean i feel like the matterhorn and third man from the mountain third man on the mountain would be a good one yeah yeah yeah, i thought so too i thought you know that was probably a very powerful (laughs) inspiration especially when walt sent the postcard back to imagineering saying build this yeah but you know (laughs) slag pile at the same time maybe yeah who knows could have been um (laughs) Another favorite place Walt would remember as an adult was a large cottonwood tree about 100 yards west of the farmhouse that Walt would refer to as his dreaming tree. Lying under the tree with his sketch pad, Walt would watch and sometimes draw the insects, birds, and animals around him. He would later call those observations belly botany. During this time on the farm, Walt developed his love for animals and nature. In later years, Walt's wife Lillian would complain that Walt loved nature so much he would not exterminate the pests eating her flowers in the gardens of their home. Walt's first encounters with animals stayed with him throughout his life. 
Before Walt's father and his older brothers arrived in Marceline from Chicago, Walt and Roy were wandering around checking out the farm. Now, Roy had been given an air rifle and used it to shoot one of the large jackrabbits that were very plentiful on the farm. Walt was so upset over seeing the animal still twitching and seeing Roy quickly snapping the rabbit's neck that he would not eat the rabbit stew his mother later made. Other than the fish he caught, Walt killed only one other animal in his life. Walt attempted to catch a large owl in the apple orchard. Walt became so frightened when the owl fought back that he threw it on the ground and stomped on it. Walt was overcome with remorse when he saw the owl was dead and buried it in a small grave. For months, Walt had nightmares about killing the owl, and Walt carried the guilt of killing the bird with him for years. As he should. I mean, it's one thing to just shoot a rabbit, but to stomp an owl to death? That's just... That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he panicked. I because he was like five, six years old. I can imagine. Poor Al. I know, really. Now, Walt was very happy playing with some of the farmyard animals. Elias had purchased cows for milking and pigs, chickens, and pigeons to feed the family. Even as an adult, Walt spoke about his pets, uh, especially the pigs. Walt named one pig who was the runt of the litter Skinny. Walt had bottle-fed Skinny, and the pig would follow Walt around the farm like a dog. Walt also enjoyed playing with another pig he called Porker. Since Walt was too small to ride the draft horses, he would ride atop Porker and hold on to her ears. Porker would usually race down to the pond and dump Walt into the mud. Porker enjoyed this so much that when Walt had the chicken pox, Walt said Porker stood outside the house snorting in disappointment because he wouldn't come out to play. Walt claimed the foolish pig in The Three Little Pigs was inspired by Porker. (laughs) Walt also claimed there was a hen named Martha who would lay an egg for him on command. Walt's farmyard experiences had an influence on him as an adult. He admitted it was no coincidence that his early cartoon shorts were heavy on utter and outhouse humor. Walt's sister Ruth, claiming after watching Ferdinand the Bull that Walt had come up with the idea for that short because as children they had to run through a nearby pasture with a bad-tempered bull to take the shortest route to school. They frequently had to outrun the bull. Yeah, and it's whenever you think about it from this aspect that a lot of his inspiration for these early cartoons did come from his upbringing. It just it makes you really start to think like, could he have been successful if he would have grown up anywhere other than this environment where he was around all these animals? Uh, if he was constantly in Chicago, what what would the influences been on him? With that, I mean, it's it really is just such a critical part of his life. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, when you look at the early shorts, which we're going to do yes. in 2017, uh, think about how many are on the farms or are set in a rural area. Yeah. I mean, almost all of them in yeah, the, it, the first few. Well, and even just the, just the characters in general. 
Yeah, well, all the characters are barnyard yep. characters. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and this is where he said his imagination really took off. And you know, would Chicago have um, you know been a good inspiration for Walt's imagination? You know, living in the city. Yeah, I, I just don't he, think it would. I, I don't think he would have had an opportunity to roam yeah. as he did in Marceline. And, you know, I mean, children nowadays don't have that opportunity, unfortunately. Yeah. Or very few of them do. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, Walt was really, uh, he was really left to his own devices a lot of the time. And I think that's where his imagination, his his storytelling ability, uh, everything really, really took root yeah. here in Marceline. Now, animals weren't the only influences on Walt's life. Walt's Uncle Robert and his Aunt Margaret would visit from Kansas City. Uncle Robert was prosperous, well-dressed, smoked cigars, and loved good living. In other words, completely the opposite of Elias. And we'll talk about Uncle Robert's influence on Walt's career in a future segment of Connecting with Walt. Aunt Margaret would always bring Walt big chief tablets and crayons when he visited. Living in a nearby farmhouse was Erastus Taylor, whom everyone called Grandpa Taylor. Grandpa Taylor was a veteran of the Civil War and would regale Walt with stories of war battles. I I think Walt said, uh, there's a recording of Walt talking about Grandpa Taylor at the Walt Disney Family Museum in the first gallery. And he says, Grandpa Taylor was in all the battles and in none of them at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. The town doctor, Dr. Leighton Sherwood, would take the boys for a ride in his horse and buggy. Walt once drew a picture of Doc Sherwood's Morgan horse, Rupert. Doc Sherwood paid Walt either a nickel or a quarter, depending upon which version of the story you read, and for the drawing, and he framed it and hung it on his wall. This first sale of artwork would have a lasting impression on Walt Disney. I wonder what ever happened to that first drawing. <laughs> uh, animal probably ate it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Walt also played with boys his own age, although not with any frequencies he would if he grew up in this city. Uh, they'd go to the creek and fish or swim. In the winter, they would go skating or sledding and build a bonfire to keep warm. Once Walt put together a circus featuring a sack of kittens and some of the farm animals. Walt charged a dime admission fee. Although the kittens impressed the audience when they leapt from the sack in unison, the farm animals were less cooperative and failed to impress. So the children in the audience began grumbling and wanted their money back. But Walt was not used to having pocket change, and he refused. When his mother Flora overheard this, she told Walt to return the money. She explained that if he was going to charge people for something, they deserved to be entertained, and he should want them to leave happy. Walt would remember this years later when he started his own studio. So I think Flora sort of set Walt on his, basically, his whole philosophy about entertainment. Yes. Yeah, I I agree with that. So it's a shame that... uh and it's a shame that more people don't have that mentality today. Um, otherwise, I don't think we would get as many terrible movies as we're currently yeah. seeing in theaters all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, and um, and and maybe some of the struggles that some theme parks are having might not have them if they also kept this philosophy yeah. going. Yeah, agree. Now, Walt was a frequent companion to his older brother, Roy, and they would create a lifetime bond beginning at the farm in Marceline. Walt was also a bit of a prankster. One time, Roy was hired by the town's undertaker to wash the hearse. Roy brought Walt along to help, and Walt found it more fun to lay inside the hearse and pretend he was dead. When passersby would stop to look at him, Walt would try to scare them by springing to life. Walt tells a story of how he and Roy were delivering a wagon load of hay in Marceline when the wagon's two-horse team bolted. The horses were running through town at a dangerous speed. Roy yelled at Walt to jump, but Walt stayed with his brother until Roy stopped the horses by steering them towards a tree. Walt would stay by his brother Roy for the rest of his life, through good times and bad. However... The adult Walt was closest with was his uncle Ed. Ed was mentally retarded, although today the term uh, intellectually um, disabled would be used to describe Uncle Ed, although it was not significant enough to prevent him from leading a somewhat nomadic life, a wandering from one family member to another. Every few months, Uncle Edward would show up unexpectedly at the Disney farmhouse and ask to spend a few days. He would spend most of that time on adventures with Walt. Walt loved Uncle Ed and referred to him as Uncle Elf. Uncle Elf was an expert at bird calls, and Walt claimed Uncle Ed could attract wild animals that would crawl in and out of his pockets looking for crumbs. After a week or so, Uncle Ed would walk off before dawn and travel to another relative's house. One day, Uncle Ed left and never returned. Suffering some type of setback whilst visiting a sibling of Elias's, Uncle Ed was admitted to an institution for the mentally retarded near Chicago, and Walt never saw him again. Walt experienced a lot of firsts in Marceline. He saw his first motion picture. It was a silent film, of course, about Christ's passion and crucifixion. Walt and Ruth saw the film after school and didn't arrive home till after dark. Elias and Flora were so worried and so happy to see them that they didn't punish the children. Walt saw his first theatrical production, which was a traveling roadshow production of J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, starring the then-famous stage actress Maude Adams in the starring role of Peter since Marceline was on a main railroad line, it attracted entertainment that might otherwise not play to such a small town. Walt was so enthralled by Mrs. Adams' performance, he and his class performed their own version of Peter Pan with Walt in the title role. A block and tackle was rigged so Walt could appear to fly across the stage, and Roy was in charge of Walt's flight. But during one performance, the apparatus gave way, and Walt flew right into the laps of the audience in the front row. Now, there's an interesting postscript to this story. When Ms. Adams retired from the stage in 1937, she became a professor of drama at Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. 
Her performance of Peter Pan left such an impression on Walt that when he was developing Peter Pan as a full-length feature film in 1940, Walt wrote to her about his idea and proposed to show a reel of the storyboard and concept art sketches to get her opinion before he went into full production. He suggested they could be projected and accompanied by the narrations and music being proposed for the film. Walt would have the equipment sent to Columbia from the studio and would be happy to invite any interested students and faculty to the screening. Sounds like a brilliant idea, right? Well, not to Ms. Adams. She appeared to resent the whole idea. In a letter to Disney's merchandise licensing agent Kay Kamen, Walt wrote, She wouldn't even give me the courtesy of looking at our reel. Her reasons were to the effect that the Peter whom she created was to her real life and blood, while another's creation of this character would only be a ghost to her. It was all pretty silly, and from my point of view, I would say that Miss Adams is simply living in the past. Ironically, Ms. Adams passed away in 1953, the same year Walt Disney released Peter Pan. And I think we can all be very grateful for the fact that, you know, she had zero uh, <laughs> input and opinion given to Walt for Peter Pan. Otherwise, wonder, what could have happened to it? Yeah, I wonder if Peter Pan killed her. <laughs> that was the first thing that occurred to me when I came across this story. <laughs> Yeah, it's another little so, clever one. <clears throat> she was just so horrified, you know, at the concept of a of a cartoon of it, this of this role she created. Yeah, she it sounds like your your stereotypical over dramatic twenties thirties movie star. Oh, I know, I know. I just love to make these kinds of things up. <laughs> you know, she's right up there with, you know, Miss Travers. You know, yep. And yep. The things that are made up about her sometimes. Um, anyway, Ruth remembered one of Walt's first works of art during an interview 70 years later. Uh, my folks had gone to town and Walt and I were left there alone. We spied a big barrel of tar and opened it up. As we were looking at it, Walt said, oh, this would be real good to paint with. And he added, let's paint on the house. I wondered if it would come off, and he said, oh, sure. We went to work on the long side of the White House, the side that faced the main road. He drew houses, I remember, with smoke coming out of them, and I drew zigzags, two rows of them. We dipped big sticks into the tar, and I can remember that awful feeling when we realized a little bit later that the tar wouldn't budge. My father was so angry that he just left it there. It was still there on the side of the house when we moved. Now, Flora had held Walt back from starting school until Ruth was old enough to attend so they could go to school together. To make up for his late start, Flora taught Walt at home until he was seven years old, and both he and Ruth were enrolled at Park Elementary School. Walt's teachers agreed that he was an unremarkable student, given more to daydreaming and sketching rather than paying attention in class. Now, Walt may have found farm life idyllic, but his older brothers and parents found it less so. Once again, Elias's attempts to find a profitable occupation escaped him. Animals became sick, a drought dried out the soil, blights affected the crops. 
If the Disneys had a good apple harvest, so did everyone else, lowering the market price of the apples. So Elias buried the apples in layers of straw, as his father had done in Canada. When winter came, the apples remained fresh, and the family sold them door to door. Elias also demanded more and more from Herbert and Roy. It was only Flora's humor that prevented open rebellion from the boys. I should say Herbert and um, and Ray as well. Hmm. So there were also family disagreements, putting more strain on the Disneys. Herbert, 17, and Raymond, 15, had decided to rent a few acres from their Uncle Robert to farm. Uh, Uncle Robert, I should say, even though he owned land, he did not live um, in Marceline. He just owned land there. Okay. Um, so, so Herbert and Raymond, they believed their profits, around $175, was there to use as they deemed appropriate. Elias thought differently when he saw the pocket watches and chains the boys had bought themselves for $20 apiece. Elias thought this was a frivolous use of money and asked them what they were going to do with the rest of it. When Herbert said they were thinking of buying a heifer and a colt, Elias disagreed and said all the money should be put back into the family farm to help pay off the debt. This was the final straw for the two teenagers. Herbert rode a horse into town the next day and withdrew the money they had made from their bank accounts. After dinner, the two boys said they were tired from the day's work and went to bed early. They climbed out the window of their bedroom, carried their bags to the train station, and caught a train to Chicago. Elias took this as a personal betrayal, threatening the family's ability to financially survive. It would be impossible for Elias and Roy to run the whole farm by themselves. Elias's efforts to transform the 45 acres into a prosperous farm were also hampered by his own stubbornness. He claimed, putting fertilizer on plants is like giving whiskey to a man. He'll feel better for a while, but afterwards he'll be worse off than he was before. Elias was finally convinced when his neighbors persuaded him to fertilize a single patch of corn to see the difference. The situation became even more desperate when Elias came down with typhoid fever, then pneumonia, and required hospitalization. It was determined the source of the infection was the family's well. Although the rest of the family was healthy, authorities declared the well unfit for human consumption. Now, Roy, who was 16 by this time, was the only one left to work the farm. When Elias finally returned home from the hospital, he was so frail that Flora encouraged him to sell the farm and move to the city where there were jobs and modern amenities. Elias gave in. And there wasn't much he could really do about it at that point. No, not at all at that point. You know, I mean, they didn't have enough money to hire hands. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was just, and it was too much work, you know, for Roy. I, I can't imagine. It's just, it's, it really is hard for our, my generation to understand today. Because, you know, even <clears throat> people working on farms now are so reliant on machinery. Oh, yeah. So well, that's why people in those days had a lot of children yeah. uh, I, to work the farms. Yeah. 
you know, and really, um, we think about it, the Disneys were sort of a small family to run a farm that size, and the children, you know, most of the children were too young. Yeah, no, absolutely. To do anything. And it might have worked out in a few more years, but they were just too ahead of their time. Yeah. But the Marceline farm was put up for auction. Roy and Walt put up notices of the auction on telegraph poles and fences to advertise the auction of the Disney farm. Walt and Roy were heartbroken to see some of their favorite animals sold to strangers, especially a six-month-old colt that had been born on the Disney farm. The auctioneer sold the colt to a farmer, and both boys cried as they saw it tied to the back of a buggy and led off down the road. Later that day, Roy and Walt took the wagon into town to purchase some provisions. As they walked into the hardware store, they heard a persistent whinny. Looking across the street, they saw their colt tied to the back of the farmer's buggy. The colt had recognized them. The boys ran across the street to hug it and cry some more. The money raised in the auction was enough to pay off the family debts and left over to help the Disney start a new life in Kansas City. Flora insisted that Roy, Walt, and Ruth complete the school year before moving to Kansas City. The family moved to a town to town in a house at 508 North Kansas Avenue. They remained there until the summer of 1910 when they boarded the train for a new life in Kansas City. Walt had lived in Marceline for barely four years, yet those years left the biggest impression on his life. The influence of Marceline can be seen in the early Disney shorts and animated features, as we've been talking about. The live-action film, So Dear to My Heart, is set in the same era when Walt lived in Marceline. Kansas Street in Marceline influenced Walt's ideas for Main Street USA at Disneyland. Walt often corresponded with get with people in Marceline and always made time for visitors from Marceline if they stopped by the Walt Disney Studio. For the September 23, 1938 Golden Jubilee edition of the Marceline News, Walt Disney wrote a short letter essay titled The Marceline I Knew that included the following memory. Everything connected with Marceline was a thrill to us, coming as we did from a city the size of Chicago. I'm glad I'm a small town boy, and I'm glad Marceline was my town. The city officials of Marceline were aware of Walt Disney's rising success with his animated and live-action films, weekly television series, and the televised opening of Disneyland. They finally decided to pay tribute to their city son. With the pending opening of the new swimming pool, the first in the county, this and the city park, it was decided to name the facility after Walt Disney. An official letter was sent to the Walt Disney Studio seeking permission to name their new swimming pool and park after Walt Disney. Studio executives, however, suspected the Marceline City officials were actually seeking a donation. After they were assured the facility had been fully funded, Walt wrote back that he was thrilled and asked if there would be an official dedication and if he could attend. Walt had a film crew document his return to Marceline in silent black and white footage that could later be adapted for the Mickey Mouse Club newsreels. 
Was this actually released in that? It was. I don't believe I've ever seen it. No, it, it definitely was released yeah, huh. in the newsreels. Uh, yeah, so, and it, there was a, a voiceover narration. Um, I'm going to have to look that them. up as soon as we're done doing this. Yeah, there <laughs> actually are some on, I came across some online. Very cool. It. So they're there. So Now, Walt, Lily, and Roy, and Edna flew into the municipal air terminal on July 3rd. They were met by reporters, and Walt gave a short interview where he emphasized that he tried not to condescend to children and how he hated it being done to him as a child. The Disneys drove three hours in a Cadillac sedan and arrived in Marceline that afternoon. Event organizers decided against having the Disney stay in Marceline's Hotel Allen because it lacked air conditioning, and they didn't want the families to stay in a hotel in nearby Brookfield. Ruth and Inez Johnson had a brand new house on Kansas Avenue that had air conditioning, and the Disney stayed there while the Johnson family stayed with neighbors. Walt and Lillian slept in the room of the Johnson's seven-year-old daughter, Kay, who is now the executive director of the Walt Disney Hometown Museum, located in the former Santa Fe Railroad Depot. At a gathering, Inez expressed concern that her furnishings and dishware would look shabby to the Disneys. So neighbors from all over Marceline removed her furniture and the kitchenware and replaced it with their very best furnishings, china and silver. Many years later, in an interview, Kay Johnson, who now was married as Kay Mallon, said that was all unnecessary. The moment they met the Disneys, they knew Walt, Lillian, Roy and Edna were regular, unpretentious folks. Kay now lives in the former Disney farmhouse. So cool. It is. Although when you see photos of the farmhouse, you'll see that very little of the original farmhouse actually standing. Uh, One wall with the four windows you will recognize from the original farmhouse. Mm. And I think some of the porch, otherwise, most of it was added on to. The second story was changed, and um, it looks a bit different. Still, but, hey, but a lot of history. It's still the farmhouse. Yep. Yeah. Now the Disney's freshened up, and then they drove to the Santa Fe Country Club around 10 p.m. on July 3rd, where they were greeted by hundreds of residents. Walt spent a good part of the evening signing autographs. Walt recalled that in the early Disney cartoons, they sometimes used outhouses, and that he got the idea of using outhouses for gags for Marceline. The only other place we lived was Kansas City, and everything was up to date in Kansas City. We didn't have those outhouses, but in the early days, we got a lot lot of laughs with that outhouse. Of course, after we got a little more money, we got a little more refined about it, Walt said with a laugh. The next day, Walt and Roy visited locations of some of their childhood experiences. Walt and Roy walked down Kansas Street, and while it is apparent that Walt's memory of this street that had changed little since he had lived there except for a few automobiles, it is represented at Disneyland. As we have discussed on a previous episode of Connecting with Walt and the Dis Unplugged podcast Disneyland edition, Harper Goff's hometown, Fort Collins, Colorado, was also a major influence on the design of Disneyland's Main Street, USA. First, Walt and Roy stopped by the railroad depot. 
1898, the Santa Fe Railroad donated land to the city of Marceline for a park, and that was named after the president of the railroad, E.P. Ripley. Walt's sister Ruth had pleasant memories of the Disney family attending band concerts in this park. The Santa Fe Railroad had helped with the opening of Disneyland. A Santa Fe locomotive and caboose in Ripley Park bear the name Santa Fe and Disneyland Railway. This was at Walt's suggestion, and Walt and Roy climbed aboard the cab of the engine to reminisce. Another photo opportunity was at Park School, a two-story red brick building that had 200 students in elementary school and high school when Walt attended. He was once again surrounded by children wanting autographs. Walt said he loved the school and remembered his first teacher, Miss Brown, being very strict, and she remembered him as being pretty ornery. (laughs) Walt squeezed into his old first-grade desk at the back of the room and noticed that the initials WD were carved in the top. I remember carving WD once, but I forgot I carved it twice, said Walt at the time. There is some question as to whether it was actually Walt's carved initials or some other student with the same initials. Walt said he couldn't recall having done it, but admitted it certainly was a possibility. In any case, it was a good story, and Walt loved a good story. Yep. Then Walt talked with a few townspeople about the fire he remembered at Grandpa Taylor's farm. Walt remembered the time when the old house burned down several months after Grandpa Taylor died in 1909. It went up in a tremendous blaze and made a distinct impression on the young boy who thought the whole world was going up in flames. The Disney brothers visited their old family farm. The two men crossed a barbed wire fence, a relatively easy task for men from farm country, a little more difficult for two city men who were wearing suits and ties. (laughs) I can imagine. Everyone was impressed the Disney brothers didn't get hung up on the fence. They walked to a large cottonwood tree, which is still referred to as Walt's dreaming tree, where Walt and Ruth played and waited in the spring that runs at its base. Walt rummaged for change in his pocket to toss a penny to make a wish, and not finding a penny, put the change back in his pocket. (laughs) <laughs> so, so Walt was so Walt was careful with money, despite yes, d- despite all the stories to the contrary. Um, Walt and Roy then walked o- walked to the bridge over Yellow Creek. Yellow Creek was Walt's favorite fishing spot. On hot summer days, Walt and Roy walked the few miles to Yellow Creek and cooled themselves in the slow moving water. Walt and Roy reminisced about past picnics, swimming, and fishing, using sticks for fishing poles and safety pins for hooks. Walt was filmed flicking a little fish, a young boy who was standing on the bridge just pulled from the creek. In reality, the fish had been caught by another adult, and the whole scene staged as a photo opportunity. That afternoon, citizens gathered at the Uptown Theater for the Midwest premiere of The Great Locomotive Chase. Walt spoke briefly to the capacity audience, telling the children, My best memories are the years I spent here. You are lucky children to live here. Walt and Roy personally greeted each child at the door. When they took the stage before the movie started, the children of Marceline sang the Mickey Mouse Club song to them. 
But because the afternoon Disney television program was not yet broadcast in Marceline, the children had learned this song especially for this event. Officially released, released June 8, 1956, roughly a month earlier, The Great Locomotive Chase starred Fess Parker and Jeffrey Hunter. The film recounts the true story of 22 Union spies who stole a train from 4,000 Confederate troops near Atlanta, Georgia, on April 22, 1862, and began a race that might have brought an early end to the Civil War, if it had succeeded. Uh, Craig, have you ever seen this film? I have. This was in, I want to say it was in the second round of movies that they showed on uh, TCM, Treasures from the Disney Vault. Mm -hmm. Um, It was fantastic. Uh, It is an excellent film. I really love it. I'm very upset that it's not more readily available. I think you can, I think you might be able to get it on like Amazon Video on Demand as well as uh, YouTube's Disney uh, Disney Movies on Demand um, mm-hmm. for for a price. But uh, watching it in glorious HD, commercial free on TCM, uh, with a l- little bit of commentary before the film from Leonard Maltin mm-hmm. was just out of this world um yeah they sell the dvd at the walt disney family museum still which is nice they only sell um films that were made during walt's time no at the museum and that's one of them yeah i highly suggest that people track this one down it is so entertaining it is really well done and the story behind the making of it is, is a great story in itself yeah and of course it is a movie of its time so uh there are there are some moments that will make audiences cringe today, but yeah, that's like anything of that period. Yeah, it's, that's true, and I think we have to be careful not to to judge the film through our twenty first um, century, you know, awareness. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. No. Uh, now, now, some children showed up in Davy Crockett t-shirts. At least one was wearing a Mickey Mouse Club t-shirt, and another wore Mickey Mouse Club ears. Walt then led the excited youngsters in singing the ballad of Davy Crockett. He told the audience, I read this book when I was a boy and remembered it. The picture, The Great Locomotive Chase, was a result of remembering what I read. The movie ran from 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon nonstop until late in the evening so that everyone wanting to see the movie could do so. In 1998, the world premiere of The Spirit of Mickey was held in the same theater. Walt also stopped by St. Francis Hospital. The Sisters of St. Francis, 12 of them, came from Austria to establish missions in America. The The group grew and served in many venues, including Father Flanagan's Boys Town in Nebraska. In 1946, the sisters purchased a 16-bed hospital in Marceline, which they named St. Francis Hospital. In 1952, the building was expanded and the capacity rose to 30 beds. In 1964, a new hospital was built, and the hospital that Walt visited became St. Joseph's Home for the Elderly. Later that day, more than 6,000 people turned out for the dedication of the swimming pool. (laughs) It's just bigger than Marceline's population. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that was like, at the time, almost double it. I know. That's that's, uh, so crazy. So crazy. 
Um, a reporter for the Kansas City Times wrote, The crowd was drawn up around the pool, standing in lines that were in some instances 12 and 13 persons deep. Above the men's dressing room, a temporary platform was erected and made into an outdoor garden with decorations of potted palm trees, baskets of gladiolas, and bunting. Walt Disney and his brother Roy were among those seated on the elevated platform. U.S. Senator Thomas C. Hennings Jr. was one of the speakers and sang the praises of Walt. After a bathing beauty contest won by 17-year-old Deanne Kelly with both Walt and Roy as judges, the mayor cut the ribbon to the pool. The clock in the background reads 9.10. And about 50 local boys christened the new pool by jumping in simultaneously, creating a resounding crash, according to the newspaper report. It's particularly thrilling for me to see this fine swimming pool here, because when I was a kid here in Marceline, we swam in the cow pasture pond after we chased the cows out. So it is wonderful to have a pool like this. I feel very humble to think that you all wish to name this the Walt Disney Municipal Pool, said Walt at the dedication. The day finished with a small display of fireworks in the sky, because what is a day at Disney without ending with fireworks. I was just about to say the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So this return visit to Marceline inspired Walt to consider a new project, tentatively known as Walt Disney's Boyhood Farm. And it would have been a working farm from the turn of the century for people to visit with their children. Very similar to like Colonial Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Walt was considered was concerned that future generations of children would never know what it was like to grow up in the country, grow food, and raise animals. With Walt's passing, Roy canceled the project to focus on the Florida project. And we talked more about this project in a previous episode of Connecting with Walt, which you can find on iTunes. Mm-hmm. When the original Park Elementary School was torn down in 1959 and replaced with a modern school facility in 1960, Marceline city officials once again contacted Walt Disney to ask if he would allow them to name the school after him. This was not the first public school to be named after Walt, but it was the one of which he was the most proud to have bear his name. Walt agreed and also contributed educational materials, artwork, playground equipment, and even a special flagpole to the new school. Walt Disney had been the chairman of pageantry for the 1960 Olympic Winter Games in Squaw Valley, California. Walt was responsible for the opening and closing ceremonies, the Olympic Village, special entertainment for the athletes, and the design of the Olympic torch and other items and organization um, for the Games. At the Olympic site, Walt had 30 flagpoles raised to fly the flag of the 30 nations competing in the Olympic Games, and each flagpole had a special plaque bearing Walt Disney's signature. Most of the Olympic flagpoles went to the sponsors after the Olympic Games, but Walt arranged for one of the Olympic flagpoles to be transported and erected in front of the new school after the Games. Walt also sent along Disneyland's official orange flag with the likeness of Mickey Mouse to serve as the school's official flag. If you want to learn more about Walt Disney in the 1960 Winter Olympic Games, listen to my episode on the games on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition. 
as I turn the and that's And there's also a flagpole <clears throat> at the studios, right? We saw that's that correct. One. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think Walt actually sent along two special flags to Marceline. Um, they're both now um, in preservation. Oh, okay. So they're not on display yeah. anymore. Good. Um, Walt Disney also had a studio carpenters construct unique playground equipment for the schoolyard, such as sliding boards resembling the Conestoga wagons in Disneyland's Frontierland with covers reading Westward Ho. In 1984, Walt Disney Productions replaced the play equipment with more modern structures that are much less interesting to look at. (laughs) Um, Walt Disney commissioned studio artist Bob Moore to design artwork for the school's lobby, a main corridor, and multi-purpose room. The artwork features Disney animated characters from the classic cartoon shorts and animated features. And what's cool is it's in that, uh, you know, late 50s, early 60s style of art that the studio was putting out at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so the Walt Disney Elementary School operates today, and Bob Moore's artwork is still there. Uh, The school allows the public to visit the school to photograph the artwork after registering in the school office, which is right next to the front door. The desk with Walt's carved initials is on display in the school lobby for half the year. The other half of the year, it is on display at the Walt Disney Hometown Museum. And I believe a replica is at uh, Disney Hollywood Studios in One Man's Dream. Yes, it is in there. Mm -hmm. So. Now, Walt's contributions to the Walt Disney Elementary School would not be his last to Marceline. Uh, The Utopia and Junior Utopia attractions had been so popular at Disneyland that Walt contracted with Arrow Development in 1957 to have a third version, Midget Utopia, constructed for children too young to drive the other Utopia cars. Each of the ten cars were designed to hold two children, no adults, with two steering wheels. The cars were powered by an electrical bus bar in the center of the roadway. Uh, Midget Utopia was located in Fantasyland in the area where It's a Small World stands today. After the conclusion of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair, Walt Disney had his attractions dismantled and shipped to Disneyland and rebuilt before the walkway and show building for It's a Small World could be built, Midget Utopia had to be removed. Instead of sending Midget Utopia, though, to the junk pile, Walt decided to donate it to Marceline. It would be the first time an attraction from a Disney theme park was removed from a park and given a new life in a new home. Before being sent to Marceline, the 10 cars, electrical equipment, and power rails were all reconditioned. Admiral Joe Fowler, Disneyland's operations manager, provided guidance for its installation. Marceline provided for the cost of shipping, installation, and construction of the attraction's winding concrete roadway. Walt Disney had planned to attend the ride's dedication in July 1966. In a letter, Walt explained his doctors would not allow him to travel due to a persistent nagging cough he could not shake. It was assumed Walt had a bad cold. Of course, we know now that isn't the case. Walt would pass away in December 1966 from complications due to lung cancer. 
Midgetopia lasted barely a decade. Lacking outside financial support, Marceline was forced to close the attraction in 1977 amid rising insurance and maintenance costs. The hardware, already 20 years old when it reached Marceline, was placed in storage. The winding concrete track remained in the Walt Disney um, Municipal Park, minus the metal bus bar until the summer of 2016. The old attraction queue now houses a couple of picnic tables. One of the 10 cars is on display at the Walt Disney Hometown Museum, which we saw at the D23 Expo last year. Mm -hmm. And another was bronzed and installed on a pedestal at the side of Disneyland's Utopia track. The other eight cars are beyond the possibility of restoration. In 2008, an Imagineer from Walt Disney Imagineering, with an appreciation for Walt Disney's legacy, drew up plans for the reconstruction of the Midget Utopia next to the Walt Disney Hometown Museum. A company was located that could build new cars with the distinctive design of the originals. The museum does not receive any financial support from the Walt Disney Company. Marceline, now with a population of about 2,500, does not have the funds for a project of this size. The museum relies on volunteers, donations, grants, and admission fees. And the museum has been planning fundraising programs for the restoration project. And if you go on to their website, they now have a, you know, a buy a dedication brick. Um, in order to fund, uh, you know, sort of the first phase of the Utopia um, raceway being reinstalled. They so, need to so, get on a GoFundMe at this point anymore. You know, you know, they tried a Kickstarter program and they set it for $500,000, which, I don't know, as Kickfunder... Yeah, as Kickstarter goes, you know, I think that's a bit high for yeah. something that is such a niche sort of project. Um, I checked it when I was preparing for this show. It it got its launch at the D23 Expo. And so I checked what happened to it. It only made around not even 22000 I believe, which meant, of course, you know, it, it, it made no money. Since with Kickstarter, if you don't meet your goal... You know, none of the funds that are pledged go towards the project. So, so I checked the site to see, okay, what's going on with Utopia at the hometown museum, and and they, they are they are doing this sell the dedication brick, similar to, to what Disneyland Disney World did with their bricks. If you visit Marceline today, you can still see many of the places Walt Disney visited that are named in his honor. So, Craig, these are the places you and I are going to go to when we plan our our um, Connecting with Walt uh, episode at, at Marceline. So in 2001, the Walt Disney Hometown Museum was established in the Santa Fe Railroad Depot, which is appropriate, considering how much Walt loved trains. And, yeah. you know, he built Disneyland just so he could put a train around it. Exactly. <laughs> um, much of its contents was donated by Walt's sister, Ruth, to celebrate her brother's strong bond with his Missouri roots. Um, the museum is open from April 1st through October 31st. The museum sponsors the popular Toon Fest each September, which is a festival celebrating men and women from the A-list of cartooning and animation. Hmm. And and they've had people there like Pete Doctor, uh, oh. you know, people from Walt Disney Animation, yeah. um, people from um, you know all of like the the Sunday comics 
okay. that, that people like to read. I mean, like Garfield's, yeah. you know, artists. It's really, it's it looks really cool. Yeah. Um, you may visit the Disney farm, but it is private property. The Disney home is not open to the public. Sadly, Walt's dreaming tree was struck by lightning and finally fell in 2015. In 2004, one of Walt's grandsons, um, Brad Lund, planted a sapling that came from a seed harvested from the original cottonwood tree, no more than 30 feet from the original tree. And along with um, Mr. Lund were three Walt Disney World ambassadors with soil from the hub at the Magic Kingdom and water from the rivers of America. And this site is open daily from sunrise to sunset. Mm. Now, Walt's original family barn burned down years ago. It was recreated in 2001 with an old-fashioned barn raising. And when you visit, be sure to bring a pen, like a Sharpie or something, mm-hmm. because it's a tradition to sign your name on the interior walls. And the barn is open daily from sunrise to sunset. Mm. In 2002, a Disney Farm tradition began when Toonfest headliners planted the Disney Farm Arboretum's first trees. Um, donated by American Forest Historic Tree Nursery, the trees come from historic properties all over the world and have a tie to Disney. For example, Walt was an admirer of Abraham Lincoln, and there are trees from Lincoln's property um, planted there. And this is open daily from sunrise to sunset. And from Kay Mallins has said that they, they really take care of these trees because they get letters all the time from people asking if the tree they planted is still alive. Oh. <laughs> now, following Walt Disney's death in 1966, the citizens of Marceline lobbied the U.S. Postal Service to issue a commemorative stamp in his honor. The stamp was issued from Marceline on October 16, 1968. In 2003, the Marceline U.S. Post Office building was renamed the Walt Disney Post Office Building, making it the only federal building named for Walt Disney. Hmm. So stop by the post office and have your letter hand canceled with Marceline's one-of-a-kind Disney cancellation. (laughs) Now, Walt Disney Elementary Schools, we... um, talked about in 1960, Walt Disney canceled an around-the-world trip to attend the dedication of Walt Disney Elementary School. And speaking of the dedication, Walt commented, you know, I'm not a funny guy. I'm just a farm boy from Marceline who hides behind a duck and a mouse. (laughs) So anyways, so that was very cool. Shows how much um, Marceline meant to him. Oh, yeah. That he canceled a big trip like that. I can't say I would do the same to go back to my hometown, but... (laughs) Now, the Walt Disney Complex, Santa Fe Lake, that was built in 1912 as a private club. Um, The lake is now owned by the city. The lake and grounds are open to the public and feature a picnic area, a playground, and fishing. This park this is the park that was once the home to Midgetotopia. The park was also once home to the Walt Disney Swimming Pool Complex. Uh, as we talked about, the pool was dedicated by Walt himself during a 1956 visit, and it was and it maintained operation until the fall of 2015. Um, at the original dedication, Walt told the children of Marceline, "My best memories are the years I spent here. You children are lucky to live in Marceline." 
Now, despite Walt Disney's history in Marceline and the influence it had on his life and career, the strong connection between Walt and Marceline are subtle when you visit the town. Directional signs to the museum are so small they are easy to miss, and some just have an arrow and the word museum. Signs to Walt's dreaming tree and barn cannot be read unless you get out of your car. Kansas Avenue through Marceline has a name change to Main Street, USA, but only for three downtown blocks. But only one small street sign with mouse ears on top signifies the change. (laughs) So the next time you walk down Main Street, USA, recall its connection to Walt and his boyhood in Marceline. And remember what Walt said about the town. To tell the truth... More things of importance happened to me in Marceline than have happened since, or are likely to in the future. So, Craig, what do you think of Marceline now? I, do, I mean, it's it's a fascinating place. It is somewhere that I am very anxious to visit uh, at some point in time. Uh, it's, you know, not only did it have such a massive impact on Walt, but it's the fact that the the town has also embraced him too but i just from what you said at the end with not with being very subtle about it still at the same time i feel like that's what walt would want he wouldn't mm-hmm. want his name just plastered all over the place on there it's it's all these all these nice mentions of his name and keeping it alive in there without without making him seem overly important anything anything bigger than what he is so i i just uh, i'm very excited i it is on my bucket list and yeah. i i know i will get there one day i'm not sure when that day is but hopefully it is sooner than later yeah. well we've got to start planning yeah <laughs> i really think this would be a great connecting I, with Walt. i do too i do too yeah yeah and uh, i i have many friends that i i first met when the walt disney family museum opened because it's a nice little sort of community of Disney fans that have bonded and become friends. And, you know, we see each other outside the museum and stuff. And a number of them have gone to Marceline. And all of them have said just what a great place it is, how nice the people are. Yeah. I mean, very much the uh, hometown hospitality. I sometimes said that when they've gone to the museum, people have given them, you know, a personal tour of mm-hmm. the museum because it's all volunteers that work there. And then, then they invite them over to their house for a barbecue, or or they'll take them around town and show them, you know, um, other sites and other places that are in Marceline, and they'll 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 make sure that wherever they're staying, they're comfortable, and 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 all of that. You know, I can't guarantee that'll happen to everybody who visits <laughs> Marceline, but but you know, it's just that I, I've heard that story so many times. Yeah, and it, it's just nice that they haven't lost that, and that you know they they they've honored their city son in a way that he would want, like you said, without the glitz and glamour, in a way that still captures what Marceline meant to Walt. Yes, no, it's it's all, it sounds like a gem in Missouri. Yeah, most definitely, and I think it's 120 miles away or so from Hannibal. And since I'm a, a Mark Twain fan, I mm. thought, oh, you know, you can combine that with some other things, yep. you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So now, now, um, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Walt Disney, an American original by Bob Thomas, 
Walt Disney's Missouri, The Roots of a Creative Genius by Brian Burns, Robert W. Butler, and Dan Vietz. The uh, Marceline Walt Disney New by Werner Weiss, curator of Yesterland, uh, in an article April 16th, 2010. Walt Disney Elementary School in Marceline, Missouri by Werner Weiss for Yesterland, dated April 30th, 2010. Walt's Return to Marceline by Jim Corcus, under the pen name Wade Sampson, for Mouse Planet, dated March 18th, 2009. Marceline, Missouri, the original Main Street USA by Jim Winterman for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on July 22nd, 2012. And the Walt Disney Hometown Museum website, which has lots of information. Now, although Walt was leaving Marceline behind... There was a lot waiting for him in Kansas City. So please join us next week for episode 22, in which Craig and I take you to the second floor of the McConaughey Building at 1127 East 34th Street in Kansas City, Missouri, where we'll visit a little studio named Laughagram Studio and meet Walt Disney and Ub Iwerks. So, Craig, until our next episode... Since it's Halloween time, where will you be lurking? Uh, I don't know. I'll probably be at Halloween <laughs> Horror Nights. Um, but if you're looking for my voice, then, of course, you can find me on the Disney World Edition, Universal Edition, the everything I'm doing. Hey, Dispop? Dispop. If, if you can't find me, then you're not really looking hard enough or you're not trying to look at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and of course, you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Malata, Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun goofing around and talking about Walt's Park that started it all. And all the other Southern California theme parks, I also talk about the Walt Disney Family Museum and even more Disney history. So you can listen to us live on Mixler Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time, and you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disneyunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. And you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, twitter at mbowling121, at Facebook, I'm Musketeer Michael, and Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>